We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is me, Neem, from ArsenalVision.co.uk. In today's show, we've got some folk talking about the Arsenal 4 Watford nil match at the Emirates. I say some folk. I don't know which folk it is at the moment. I'm recording this a little earlier than usual. So, Watford got beaten by, by a much better looking Arsenal side. I don't mean in terms of looks, of course. I mean in terms of performance. Yeah, we've, um, we've now found uh, a system... A team, a way of playing that that's um, getting goals and not conceding goals and winning three points. I wish we found this a little earlier. I really do. I know I should try and just put that at the back of my mind now, but it's so frustrating because we have this team to win the league. Anyway, forget that. We look good again. We um, lost to Barcelona with this this team pretty much, uh, but we performed really well. Went to Everton, blew them out of the water, and now destroyed Watford at home. And we're looking good. We're looking very committed, very powerful, uh, very quick, cohesive, cohesive, cohesive. Uh, Parsons a lot more fluent and faster. And basically, we're a much better team. And um, yeah, try not to go back in time again. Um, it's good going forward if Leicester can slip up, which they're not doing. They keep winning 1 0. Ah! Stop winning 1 0. It's so frustrating. They keep getting decisions going their way. They don't get any injuries. What's going on? It's not fair. I don't like it. Iwobi looks very good. Alexis on the right, a much better player on the right. He goes past people and makes progress going forward. He'd assisted, as I mentioned in my match review, he'd assisted a lot of goals from doing the same move, beating his man and cutting it back. 
On the left-hand side, he's cutting inside into traffic and losing the ball. Uh, this time, he's not doing that. And who else played well? Oh, Elneny. Very impressive. Francis Cochley next to him. Again, very aggressive, making a lot of a lot of challenges and interceptions. Great defensive work from him. Our back forward, very proactive, trying to win the ball back. We look good. We look like we know what we're doing again. Let's hope we can continue going forward. West Ham next away. That's a tough game. But I don't know. I just got a good feeling about this team. I think we're going to beat them. I know they've beaten pretty much everyone. But they're not going to beat us because we're going to beat them. Yeah? You heard it here first. Maybe not first, but you definitely heard it here. Watch this space. But it's not really down to us. It's down to um, not so much Tottenham because I think they're going to they're gonna balls up anyway because they're Tottenham. And they dropped points at Anfield, so that's good. They could they should have lost the game, though. It would have been better for us. But um, Leicester are just driving me mad with their 1-0 wins and their fluky decisions and their same players every week. What's going on? Imagine Arsenal had the same players every week. That'd be hilarious. But yeah, anyway, I'm rambling. I don't know what I'm talking about now. So, I'm going to hand you over to the guys, whichever guys they are, and enjoy the podcast and back after West Ham. Arsenal thrash a Watford team that frankly never stood a chance at the Emirates against Arsenal. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. That's right, it was a 4-0 victory for the mighty Arsenal against a team that, let's be frank, that that's not a Watford side that really can come to the Emirates and compete. Um, I think we can all say that pretty confidently. There's no scenario where that Watford team could come to the Emirates facing this Arsenal team and even stay close, let alone get a result, let alone eliminate Arsenal from a cup. Oh, anyway, uh, you get the idea. The irony was being laid on pretty thick. I probably didn't need to explain where I was going with it, but I felt, you know what, just for the last few people screaming at their podcast, they just beat us. Well, there you go. I knew that. Anyway, um, Tim and Paul are here. Hi, Tim and Paul. Hello. Yeah, good. That's just what I was going for. Um, Tim can be found on Twitter at Stilberto. You can read him on Arsblog. You can occasionally hear him on the Arscast. Uh, he is an excellent writer and podcasting contributor, so please be sure to follow him, read him, and listen to him. Paul can be found on Twitter at Posin in My Pants, occasionally blogging as well. He is an excellent blogger when he opts to do it. He blogs when he wants, he blogs when he wants. Posin in My Pants, he blogs when he wants. Hello, Paul. Hello. I blogged this week. Well, yep. last yep. week. Yep. Anyway. I know. I'm a, I'm a blogger again. Yeah. Always good to do it during the international break when no one really cares about anything. Uh, the proper football came back in a proper way. Arsenal spanked Watford 4-0. It really was enjoyable. I think, and we'll get into the question of whether the pressure was on or was off. Is that why we perform? That why we don't perform later? But I want to get into this um, lineup that we've settled on. And I'll start with you, Tim. Um, Alex Awobi has forced his way into the starting side um, over more senior players, more experienced players. Theo Walcott, Joel Campbell, maybe a little harsh on him. Um, even Olivier Giroud, you could probably make an argument that he could be starting up front with Alexis and Welbeck. But it's 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 that addition of sort of the young, dynamic Iwobi, his control, his touch, his energy and movement that has really brought life back to the attack. While the Coughlin and El Nenny partnership um, seems to have returned some some structure to the midfield. Is this formation now and, and this system with these players in it what you expect to see the rest of the way? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I read Paul's article this week. I'm in full agreement. Um, don't touch a thing unless you have to. Maybe check for a spinner. Um, and as, as much as I think the manager is obviously trying to give Gabrielle a run of games and he really sees something in that Gabrielle-Cashelny partnership, 
and I don't necessarily disagree. I could maybe stomach Mertesacker coming back in and thinking that that doesn't upset the balance too much. Everything else with that front six, leave it exactly as it is. We're playing pretty much once a week for the rest of the season. And, um, you know, the return of Welbeck, the emergence of Alex Awobi, the emergence of Mohamed Elneny, they've all... And, you know, how many times have we spoken about it on this podcast at length? We've laboured over the fact that Arsenal just haven't had enough good partnerships and enough good ball players. And uh, I, I suppose... Without wishing to start on a on a kind of negative um, on, on a negative foot here, it's a little bit frustrating because Mohamed El Nenny, and I hope this doesn't sound harsh because it is absolutely not intended to, but Mohamed El Nenny, Alex Wobi, and Danny Welbeck, they're not world class players. They're all very good players. Um, so it really hasn't taken top top class players to come and transform the team. Just we needed certain types of players in there, and it's it's a world away from kind of the Ramsey Flamini partnership, where the ball just gets stuck in the centre circle, and then it goes up to Alexis, who has to do the creative bit all on his own, and it gets stuck with him. It goes to Giroud, and it gets stuck with him. Um, and that's none of that's none of those individuals' faults. It's just we had too many of the same type of player, and all of a sudden, a player like Iwobi, that kind of secondary playmaker. That I think we've been lacking for about three or four years, to be quite honest with you, has come in. Um, what What's slightly unforeseen is that him and Welbeck seem to have a really, really nice kind of connection going on. And actually, I was listening to um, a lesser-known rival podcast, the Arscast Extra, earlier. And, uh, <laughs> and actually, James from Gunnerblog, he made a, he made a fair point without wishing to overhype it. Um, you know, that, that Iwobi-Welbeck partnership does have some of those Omri Pires traits in that they both like the left channel. They both play quite close together. Um, you know, they, they, they like to they pass the ball between themselves quite a bit. And uh, and, and that, that really struck me, actually, because I was thinking as well that Elneny and Kokola, <laughs> we're, we're really going into dreamland here, reminds me a little bit of Vieira and Petit, that both players are largely defensive. They pretty much sit. They do different things when they sit, but they both largely pretty much just sit and let the front four get on with it. And it gives them, um, you know, it gives a player like Iwobi the, the liberty to roam around um, that front three because he really pops up all over the place. Um, and it, it just, it looks like a brand new team. And it's just everything that we've been saying for the last four months on this podcast that, um, that Arsenal really, really need. So I think we're all due um, a consultancy fee um, and about £3 million a piece would do it. <laughs> Tim, one more quick question for you. So you've written about the squad as it currently is composed. And, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you wrote an article sort of asking what the plan was and if there was a plan to how the squad was com- composed and you hit on something there in the beginning where you're saying you know Welbeck, Elneny, Iwobi these are not necessarily world-class players but what a difference they make is is it showing just how important it is not to have talent at each position but to have the right fit for the system you want to employ in the position and is that really what we've been missing not so much the talent but players that fit the system Absolutely. I, I absolutely do. And uh, really, the, the conundrum, uh, such as it is, 
um, can be kind of really viewed through the prism of you've got uh, Aaron Ramsey and Santi Cazorla who are both brilliant, brilliant central midfielders. Um, and there's this kind of war going on really as to which one should start because they're both completely different and they both completely transform how your team plays. And, um, and you know, I've, I've said many times before, I can't understand why you'd make someone like Mikel Arteta the fulcrum of your team for four years and then don't buy anybody else that does a similar job. Um, maybe El Nenny is a belated kind of example of that. But, yeah, yeah, I, I really do think that. And, you know, um, Leicester City are about to win the league, and I know they've, you know, they've made fewer changes to their starting eleven than any other team. But, you know, you look at the, the, the top two at the moment, Leicester and Spurs. What is it that makes them the top two? They're the best units um, in the league. They have a clear plan. For, for the plan. systems they want to play, yeah. Exactly. They have a clear plan about how they want to play. And they've both been, you know, a little bit fortunate to be able to keep a core of players together. But, yeah, yeah, I, I think I think it absolutely says that. There's, of course, a, a, a counter-argument that says, well, um, Arsenal have found this with the players they've got. I mean, they bought El Nenny in, but Welbeck was always there. Iwobi was always there. Um, and I suppose the manager might, might make the argument that, well, I had those players. They just weren't always available to me. And actually, um, for, you know, our FA Cup campaign was, was quite ill-fated and disappointing in the end. But if it did anything for us, it helped us bring um, El Nenny on. It helped us bring Iwobi on and give him game time, a uh, kind of crucial part of the season. Um, so if it's done nothing else, it's helped us bring those two players on and come across this solution. Um, you know, is it a coincidence that we keep stumbling upon these solutions or does the fact that we do seem to stumble upon them show that it's bad planning? Um, I, you know, I think it's probably a real mixture of both. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I think th that the suggestion somehow that because Iwobi was in the squad or Welbeck was in the squad, that this was ultimately the plan, obviously... Yeah. I don't think anybody would try to make that argument. No. I, I think, again, well, we've well, even, onto it. Elliot, even Wenger is talking about what a huge surprise, say, Uwobi was, and I think he's, yeah. he hasn't quite used that phrasing with El Nenny, but you can see the El Nenny thing in his comments isn't quite... The, the team structure with El Nenny as it is at the moment isn't quite the structure he was anticipating on playing at this point. Yeah, well, well, I, I think Paul also ultimately, you know, he stumbled a little bit on the Francis Coughlin too, and so many of these parts feel a little bit like happy accidents that I, I think it does give rise to the question of whether this was the plan or this is just where we've wound up. Um, now, that happens at every club to some extent. You know, I don't think Marcus Rashford was in Van Gaal's plans necessarily. You know, I don't think Hector Bellerin was in Arsene's plans when he stepped up thanks to a Debussy injury. But, um, look, let me ask you this, Paul, in terms of what this says, and we'll get into the game in a second, but I think this is an issue that's an interesting one. You know, there's been some rumors about Ramsey being wanted by other clubs, and should we sell him, should we keep him? I'm certainly not of the position that Ramsey is someone we should actively pursue selling, but he does feel like a player that, for better or for worse, 
has all the talent in the world and none of it suits the setup we want to play in some respects. Santi Cazorla had taken that central midfield role from him. He then got it back due to Cazorla's injury and arguably we played the worst football of our season with him there. El Nenny has come in and again, you look at the numbers. When Ramsey was playing in central midfield, either with Coughlin or Flamini, the leading passers in the side were Bellerin, Mertesacker, Gabriel, Koscielny. And against Watford on Saturday... It was Elneny with 127 passes. It was Ozil with 111, and it was Coughlin with 89. Right through the middle of the park, building right through midfield, controlling possession again through midfield. Those are numbers we saw when Arteta was deputizing in midfield, when Arsenal played Arsenal football. Um, how hard is it going to be for, for, unless there's some major change that, that we can't predict, how hard is it going to be for Ramsey to fit back into this system? And, and what is a Ramsey inclusion look like at this point? Well, hopefully it'll be really hard for him to fit back into it. I mean that in the most positive way. Do you, do you way. think the manager will keep him on the bench? I mean, in favor, I mean, can you keep an Aaron Ramsey on the bench in favor of this system with guys like Alex Awobi starting ahead of him? Yeah. 19-year-olds? So I think he'll play him on the wing. I mean, I, I hope it's not a rush and, and, you know, Ramsey will take a little time to come back. If you look at the essential elements of this team, Iwobi's been great. I love Iwobi, but he's, what, nineteen twenty now? Um, you know, they're prone to inconsistencies, and it's only a matter of time. So there's on the, the one side, there's that aspect of it. We have played our best football this season now with Iwobi, but earlier with Ramsey on the right wing. Um, the essential elements of this team, the big change for me, Although Iwobi is catching the headlines and being brilliant, um, the big changes were Coquelin, El Nenny, and Welbeck, and we saw that when we played really well against Spurs, uh, albeit with ten men. You know that was the first time in a long time we've looked like a good team. Then we played well against Barcelona in in the kind of token second leg with those guys plus Iwobi. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everton, those guys, plus Iwobi. So I would argue the essential elements are bringing Welbeck into the middle, and I think everybody understands what that does for the the amount of space we have in the final third. You know, if you look at um, at uh, Sanchez's goal uh, when he rises like a salmon for for the header, there's nobody in the box. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating having nobody else in the box, but that's classic Danny Welbeck movement. Um, you know, I think probably everybody's seen a few of those heat maps I circulated of the front, our front four, where, uh, as we talked about, Sanchez and Ozil is on one side, Welbeck and uh, Iwobi tend to be on the other side. Now, what's going to be really... Uh, the problem with everything I've said is, I do think those are the en- essential three, but to bring Ramsey back in, the biggest heartburn I have is that pushes Sanchez to the left side again. And although mm-hmm. he may think that's his favorite position, uh, he probably likes it because it allows him, as we all know, to cut in onto his right foot. And I don't think go- he'd say that's his preferred position. He has. Really? St- yeah. I, I think the way he's played, the way he plays for Chile if I had to guess, would be the way he'd love to play for his club. Yeah, no, he's he's well on record. Google it, dude, as they say. Um, you know, and I'm just going to throw this out there, Paul. Yeah. Uh, contradicting my points with facts, not yeah. cool, but whatever. It's fine. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, I think it's one of those things that actually a player's favorite position is whichever one he's really 
singing in, and I'm sure he used to like cutting in on his... When he scored a lot of goals from the left, I'm sure he decided it was his favourite position. If he scores a lot of goals from the right, I, I doubt if he really cares. Is it the move to the left that's reinvigorated him, or is it playing with players whose movement and positioning suits him better, like Welbeck and Awobi, as opposed to Ramsey and Giroud? I think, as Tim would say, a bit of both. But um, That's a great answer, because you can argue But for me, that. I'm going with the... He, he would be playing well on the left right now with Welbeck, so I don't think it's that. I think we've seen him playing really well from the left with Walcott when Walcott was still a good player. And, it, and I kind of, I've tweeted this a few times and people get the wrong end of the stick, which I understand because it's me tweeting it. But, I mean, Welbeck is posting Walcott-type numbers, 15 passes, 30 uh, touches in a game. I mean, that's that's well, to, to be fair, in, oh, yeah, in yeah. sixty-eight minutes. But yeah, but still, you know what I mean. That's he's uh, and looking a bit frustrated with his own performance uh, against Watford, as some people said. But he stirs the pot. Uh, it's kind of I'm not saying he's sacrificing itself himself, but those numbers indicate all of the movement he's providing that opens up all the doors for the other players. So uh, I think that's the biggest factor. I mean, okay. the, the, the uh, other quick point, uh, you know, Coquelin Nenny obviously gives us a tremendous space in midfield, which allows Bellerin get, to get forward more so. I mean, they all, our fullbacks always bomb forward, but they probably don't bomb as forward as they'd like to. But when you have a base of, I mean, you look over on the right side of the field and we've got Alexis, Ozil, Bellerin and El Nenny forming triangles, knocking that ball around for about five minutes and Watford can't get near it. And before you know it, we're in behind them. I mean, El Nenny gives a tremendous base that allows Bellerin to bomb up and back securely. Uh, and pretty much, the, you know, Welbeck, uh, we didn't see it this game because he didn't have to, but the previous... Um, match against Everton. I mean, Welbeck did three or four blistering runs right back all the way to our box to recover the ball or to block. And that gives our fullbacks tremendous security in pushing forward. And so Mm -hmm. a, a more secure midfield doesn't mean a less attacking attack. I think it actually allows us to attack more effectively, more aggressively. It's it's kind of a two for one. So um, I, I think that triangle of players, Welbeck and Cockelnenny, is what the real difference is. Yeah, it's it's so clear cut to see. Now, I guess the question I have to ask you real quick, Paul, is, and I hate sometimes this is a question I I hate to ask or to be asked or seen written about because. Anytime you destroy a team, you can always present it as that team was terrible. Um, But was Watford terrible? They were terrible, but I think it's kind of like the glass jaw thing. Everton were a bit the same. They started well enough. We started better. uh, But the script got written pretty early for them, and we didn't let up. I think they get the message at a certain point it's not going to be their day, and they become more terrible. Uh, but I think they generally come out mm-hmm. of the, the dressing room ready to play and feeling good about life. And But, I mean, we were a fucking whirlwind. And yeah. that, you, you just watch the first 10 minutes of each game and you say, okay, that's where we won it. And that was down to us. Now, I think there is that fragility of them uh, wondering what there is to play for 
for the rest of the season creeps into it after they start to think this may not be the this day and kind of who are these guys the, this whirlwind attacking us um but yeah they're a bit shit yeah okay fair enough uh tim alex awobi is obviously making a difference he's making an impact at 19 to a squad that needed an impact player both in terms of scoring goals and uh providing assists I think his movement has been excellent. His first touch really seems fantastic for someone his age. We've had some players who flattered to deceive. I thought for sure Serge Nabry would be forcing his way into the first team. That hasn't happened. Um, you know, we know about the injury record for some of the players, which has been an impediment. Uh, Oxley Chamberlain hasn't kicked on. Everyone thought by this point he'd he'd be starring for Arsenal. Do you see anything in Awobi that gives you reason to distinguish him? from some of these other young players who have flashed but not had the staying power? Or do you think the same caution is required with him as well? Um, at the moment, caution. If he puts another couple of performances together like this, then I think you have got something distinguishable because the likes of Gnabry and Chamberlain were or have been impressive in one-off games and not really put runs of form together. Um, if, if it were... And I... I think looking at him, there is something very mature and pleasing about his game. He's he's quite, you know, all of a sudden our team has become quite athletic again, uh, quite strong, quite kind of lithe, for want of a better word. Yeah, and, pace and, and power. He, yeah, exactly. And he he exemplifies those things. He's good on the ball. He's got a nice touch. He can hold people off as well. Um, the thing I think that's really interesting about Alex Awobi, having watched him a little bit in the under-21s, he played he played quite a lot as a number nine and often as a false nine in the under-21s. And his finishing is very, very good. And you've seen that um, in this last couple of games, not just with his goals, but he hit the crossbar as well with a decent shot with his left foot, with his weaker foot. Um, and he's kind of got that side to his game because he's got some experience of playing all across the front three, but he had quite a run a couple of seasons ago as a number nine. And I think that really adds something interesting that adds um, more goals. And you could see how calmly he took that finish and, you know, how, how often have we seen this, this season that in the build-up play, it's all been a bit frantic and the finishing, but well, he's, he's got a nice cool head on him in front of goal. He's shown that in the last couple of games and both his finishes very controlled along the floor um, he's shown he can shoot with his left as well, so he's got like a nice balance to him. So I, I do think there are positive signs, but obviously we have to temper it. Um, you know, he's coming into a unit that's playing very well. That said, usually, you know, when young guys come into the team, they flourish when the team is playing well. Well, mm. Alex Awobi has come into a team that has not been playing well. Uh, and that's largely because he added the qualities it really needs, but it does speak to a kind of um, a stature in him and uh, certainly a maturity that he was able to come into an underperforming team and is one of the main reasons it's performing again. Mm -hmm. um, now, obviously, there's going to be some kind of dip um, you know, later on. I, I, I'm not sure I see it happening this season. I think if we can keep this team together and keep this run going, I think we'll see pretty much the same performances. But then, of course, you know, uh, opponents will know a little bit more about him. They'll know a little bit more about this kind of front four Arsenal have got going on. And, and that's when the real challenge starts. But at the moment, I think 
if he puts another couple of games together, I think he's got a consistency. Um, and then you start looking at him more in going towards the Bellerin kind of category as a guy who came in, got a run of games and just looked, took to it like a duck to water to a kind of lesser extent because he was a bit older. Francis Coquelin, exactly the same, came in, gave the team something it was missing, got a run of games, never looked back. Um, mm-hmm. And hopefully Iwobi is on that path, whereas, you know, Gnabry and Chamberlain were kind of in and out of the side, playing cup competitions, um, and, you know, just showing flashes of good play. Also, they're, they're very kind of, um, you know, power kind of players, you know, head down and run at people. And sometimes that really works and sometimes it really doesn't. Whereas there's a kind of serenity to a Wobie that I think really, really fits yes. the way that Arsenal play football. Whereas Chamberlain and Gnabry, you'd be looking at, um, again, the Arsenal need players like this as well, um, to kind of balance the team because in the past, many years ago now, I'd say we perhaps had too many technical players and not enough explosive players and players like Chamberlain and Gnabry were in the team to add something else, something different. Whereas mm-hmm. I think Iwobi fits the fabric of the team a little bit more. Um, yes. but, but of course it's, it's very early days. So we obviously have to temper it a little bit, but I think the initial signs are very good. Yeah. You know, I, you, you unfortunately stole my thunder a little bit, not surprisingly, well, surprising that I had thunder, but, um, in that, I think if you look at Nabry and Oxlade Chamberlain, they were the prototypical young athletic players, right? Push and run, dribble past a guy, do it on their own, cannons for shots and pace to burn, but maybe not the best first touch, maybe not the most technical, maybe not the best vision, both frequently guilty of having their head down and missing the pass when it was on or decision-making. And Awobi, I think, is totally different. His first touch is exemplary for the assist to to Sanchez, he's on the totally opposite side of the pitch. Sanchez puts his hands up like, hey, I'm free at the back stick. And Awobi's alert to it. His head's up. He sees it. He has a first touch that reminds me a little of what made Jack Wilshire so exciting when he came into the game, the way he receives on the half turn, you know, the way he can take it with either foot. Um, he doesn't rely on one foot. So when you had the technical skill, the touch, the vision, that's a platform to build a game on. When you just have athleticism, that's not going to be enough to carry you. And if you can't develop the vision, the heads-up awareness, the touch, you're eventually you're going to fall the way of tons of these young, powerful players we've seen who just get found out and found wanting. So, you know, I like that about him. The other thing, too, is I think some of those really explosive young players are the ones who fall victims to the muscle injuries and the injuries in general. Um Maybe not the case with a technical player like a Wobie, but that could be a reach there. Uh, I haven't practiced sports medicine in years, so I could be totally wrong there. Um, could Paul, I throw in the one other thing nope. has to his favor is that – can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. I said no, but all right. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Is that he can, can genuinely play in three different positions, which – uh, you know, if he does end up taking a backseat for a little while, it gives him a great chance to keep finding a role to play off the bench or, you know, when somebody when he needs to step in. So he's a great chance of of uh, staying involved with the squad and being a very attractive addition to have on the field mm-hmm. or on the bench. As you say, as Tim said, I think, uh, you know, you can see him playing for pretty much this whole season. Next season, when things are settled down and you have a full team, he has a great chance of being an you know an integral part of the squad 
uh, all through the season, whether he's a starter or he's first man off the bench. Why, oh, why could he not have played for England? That's all I can say. Not because I give a shit about England. No offense, Tim. But because we know what it's like to have to depend on a player who's going to go away mid, mid-season mid to an African Cup of Nations um, and come back in who knows what shape to play. So that that's the only downside there, um, especially if we're expecting him to become an important part of our squad going forward. So, Paul, there's a player near and dear to your heart, a guy who I have never been sold on um, and started to lose faith in throughout the season. That's Francis Coughlin. He had a phenomenal game um, against Watford. And if you do something interesting, if you go to whoscored.com and you go to heat maps and you bring up the Arsenal heat map for Coughlin and Ramsey during the games they played, you've got a really weird shape with Coughlin, kind of most of his activity right around the midfield stripe and a little bit in his own half. And Ramsey's mostly right in the front of the D and, and kind of spread out all over the pitch. And if you do the heat map for Elneny and Coughlin from the Watford game, it makes like this big-ass storm cloud from just ahead of our defensive D to just about 5, 10 yards before the D in the attacking zone. And they basically just patrolled and controlled the middle of the pitch. And I tweeted during the game how noticeable it was, how deep Elneny was willing to drop to give Bellerin an option, to give his center backs an option, something Ramsey wasn't necessarily doing. And I think it allows Coughlin to focus on what he does well, to be able to go forward at times, knowing he has the protection behind him. He just seems a lot more confident. How important has Elneny been to Coughlin's resurgence, and how impressed were you with Coughlin uh, against Watford? I think he was. I think he's been great. I think he's been great. Against, I thought he was great against Everton. Against Everton, they had pretty similar passing numbers, like forty-six versus forty-nine, with El Nenny passing a, passing a few more times. Uh, similar completion rates. In this, you could almost say, you know, El Nenny was phenomenal. One hundred and twenty-eight or whatever it was one hundred and twenty-seven. And Coquelin at 88 or something. I mean, those are huge numbers for Coquelin when you when you look back on the days when he, you know, even when he with his successful partnership with Cazorla, you know, Cazorla'd be heading for a hundred, and Coquelin be like 30 or something. So I just wonder. It, uh, obviously, that it's a different balance with these two players than than in any of his previous partnerships. But the other thing is, this guy's more of a peer. Santi was clearly the general in midfield. Ramsey was clearly the superior player that, that Coquelin was trying to find a way to work with. But this, they, they find it easy to play to each other uh, and to play with each other and to share the duties. I mean, the things they do aren't that different uh, these days. It's not how you think of Coquelin as a player, but he's kind of stepping forward and being a version of El, the more de- defensive version of El Neni. I mean, his some of the passes he played, he, he played a significant role in both goals. Uh, he had a beautiful ball to uh, Alexis that freed open um, uh, for one of the goals. Uh, not sure which one. And then he had the header that knocked it down to Iwobi, which I know was more uh, kind of a, a recovery ball, but, a, you know, a, a very decisive header forward to Iwobi that opened up the play on that side. And I th- it feels like he's blossoming because there's a kind of a parity between him and El Nenny and a, a, a similarity 
with some differences, and it just looks like he's he's really enjoying his football, not just being the destroyer, but he's actually starting to really play, pass the ball around, feel comfortable. I mean, he still has his rough edges. He'll still make a pass that doesn't look very distributy every now and then, but most of the time mm-hmm. he's looking very strong and has been a, a, a big... You know, not just the the defensive player, not just creating by stopping a turnover or by creating a turnover, but that's a big part of creating uh, going forward. But genuinely distributing and playing, and and clever passes and angled passes. You know, he's coming along. So uh, he made the most passes in the game to. Uh, El Nenny, 18. I mean, the, of, of the passes he made, 18 were to El Nenny, 15 were to Ozil. Mm. Um, and I think that's a big, big difference for, for Coughlin from when he's paired with when he's paired with Ramsey, wouldn't you say? Yeah, hugely. I mean, the, the whole Ramsey... I mean, you know, the other side of the Ramsey thing... Um, you look at the stats for the mileage. I mean, Ramsey works his ass off. El Nenny runs every bit as far, maybe a little further. And again, I'm not ra- knocking Ramsey. He's a different. Clearly, we've all, we're all seeing he's a different kind of player. I love him, but mm-hmm. he needs to play forward, further forward on the pitch. And they do similar mileage. El Nenny does even more. Yet El Nenny doesn't run nearly as far up the pitch. So he's doing all. Basically, he's doing more running. In a in the area in front of the box, which means he's always running to be that balance, to run into a pocket, to to make a triangle. I mean, he was absolutely Mister Triangles against Watford, uh, especially on the right wing with with the other three lads. I mean, always moving to to make that next triangle to give everybody a couple of options for the passes, and it's just a different way of using his mileage. Ramsey is all about getting forward to get on the end of it, to get in behind, and El Nenny is not doing that. You'd almost say he's not doing it in the slightest. He's just making triangles for the other players to shine. You know, mm-hmm. El Nenny's highlight reel would probably be okay if you had a look at it, but nothing. I don't think he did anything particularly dramatic in the game, but he was a huge part of why there is a highlights reel for all the other guys. He's just, that's what he does. He keeps finding angles. And it's probably why Coquelin's playing much better because he's making triangles. He's always giving Coquelin an option, an out ball, whether Coquelin goes that way or the other way. That's creating space for Coquelin. Yeah. You want to hear something interesting too. On Saturday, the player who made the most passes to Francis Coquelin was Mohamed El Nenny. And the player that Francis Coughlin made the most passes to was Mohamed El Nenny. And that tells you that the, the midfielders are working together, right? They're they're finding each other, creating space. Now, this is interesting, okay? The last game that I think it's fair to compare, which would be the Swansea loss at home, I, I didn't look at the Spurs game. Um, it was a weird game. We went down 10 minutes. I'm just, just looking at the, the game where Coughlin and, and Ramsey started in midfield together against Swansea at home. The most passes Coughlin received from Gabriel Paulista. Second, Ozil. Third, Monreal. Fourth, Bellerin. Fifth, with only five passes, Ramsey to Coughlin. And he had six fewer passes to Ramsey than he did against Watford. 
And, you know, look, it's small sample size. You could be drawing conclusions too easily. But I think what it says is Ramsey was never in the position to find Coughlin, and Coughlin was really in the position to find Ramsey, which means there was a disconnect in midfield. Elneny and Coughlin were in synchronicity, right? And they were finding each other and creating space for each other and providing to each other. Um, And one of the reasons I also think that Coughlin received fewer passes in the game from Gabriel, from Koscielny, from Bellerin, is because Elneny took the role that Cazorla takes. He dropped deep, he came back, he gave the option for the defenders, collected the ball, and started the move. Um, Tim, do you, do you want to expand on that? I mean, do you, do you see what I'm seeing there, or do you think I'm just finding statistics to confirm a bias? No, 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 I, I, I definitely see that. In fact, Arsene Wenger made some fairly pointed comments when he said that... Um, I saw that, yeah. He was kind of, you know, saying that Elneny has, has picked up, you know, without mentioning... So didn't he say names, something like, but, tactically in our defensive shape is better now or something yeah, along those lines? He actually, he actually kind of said that they were better than Cazorla and Coquelin because Cazorla, while he played deep, um, and, you know, he was a valuable defensive weapon because he can dribble out of pressure and things like that, but what Wenger was saying was that actually everything he does is geared to attack, um, whereas Elneny... Um, it, you know, it, it's not that he's a destroyer himself, but he's he's probably not quite as imaginative a player as Cazorla. But he just does all of those things that that really. Uh, and that's why earlier I made the Vieira and Petit reference, not because I think that either player are, are that good as individuals or even that good as a partnership, because that was one of the greatest partnerships possibly in the club's history. But what I meant was that they both stay quite close together and primarily their job is kind of defensive. Now, it's different sides of the defensive coin, but largely they stay pretty much put. And actually, they they play quite close together as well. They're they're not far apart from one another. Um, When you look at kind of the average position maps and things like that, they're, they're right next to each other which is why they mm-hmm. pop off passes to one another all the time because they play very close together. Um, and, and I think that's that's been really, really interesting. I think the thing that's caught my eye about Elneny, um, not just, you know, he's obviously very metronomic with his passing, as, as the numbers show from Saturday. What I like about him is, he's, and I, I thought this was really obvious from the Spurs game as well, he's almost like a, a kind of polyfiller player in that whenever anyone moves anywhere, he... he backfills the space he's very very aware so if Coquelin moves forward a little bit and Coquelin was very involved in the second goal by the way um, with a you know a lovely pass to Alexis in the channel and the reason that Coquelin can go that far forward I mean how many times did we have kittens about Flamini being you know mm-hmm. uh, advanced in the final third well Coquelin kind of was there but you don't panic because El Nenny's back he's filling the space whenever Bellerin wants to go forward he just takes a little step to the right. He doesn't necessarily, you know, go right back into the right back role so as to um, abandon the centre of the pitch. But he just shuffles slightly to the right just in case um, anything crops up. And not only does that serve a very valuable defensive um, uh, kind of a very defensive kind of function, but it, it also helps him to make angles to receive the ball as well because he fills little parts of the pitch that, that have been vacated. Um, he's, he's, he seems he's very, very intelligent with that. Um, and obviously, you know, other kind of numbers, the, the distance run, El Nenny is just absolutely 
you know, right up until the last minute, sprinting everywhere. And I remember reading an interview when he first arrived saying, you know, he was playing football for nine, ten hours a day in Cairo, um, which might explain why he's got a set of lungs on him and, and, and he can run because he's conditioned to play in very stifling temperatures, but he can still run forever. Um, and, you know, not discounting the fact that he's not really played much this season. He's come from a league where he's had a winter break and things like that. So, you know, maybe next season we'll see a bit more, if he's a bit more involved in the kind of, um, in a Premier League season. And he'll have the African nations um, to contend with as well. So, you yeah. know, maybe that advantage will start to dip, whereas he's a relatively fresh player now. Uh, and he's a real unknown quantity as well. So... But, well, there, I mean, there was that stat from the Champions League. Maybe it was last year, but I think he played. Uh, well, but that was part of a series of games. I think he played seven or eight Champions League games, and he had the highest average mileage or kilometrage, which was uh, he he was over twelve kilometers for all of his games in the Champions League season, which is just yeah. I've been impressed with his kilometrage myself. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we, we've talked about the importance of an Arteta who's more athletic and 127 passes at 96% completion while also covering the most ground on the pitch. That sounds like it fits that mold. Is there any argument that maybe the way Ramsey gets back into midfield is to trying him with El Nenny, Paul, and instead of a Coughlin? I mean, it's certainly horses for courses, but is that is that the way forward? It doesn't feel it to me. It feels like we're going back to trying to solve a Ramsey problem when we need to be worrying about what works best. Well, we do have a Ramsey problem to solve. I think you could make that point. Yeah. uh, My favorite way of solving it is playing him on the right wing, but that creates. And that does push Sanchez at a right wing, but I think Sanchez will probably be fine on the left wing. It's one of those things, you know. uh, it's not a big happy coincidence to have to try you know it's not this weird uh scenario to test out but i mean there is a lot of trial er- and error in these partnerships and these formations i think it should work but um and we've seen we have seen ramsey on the right and uh sanchez on the left working really well when it was walcott in the middle don't see why it wouldn't work just as well and better with welbeck Uh, and with that platform behind them. So I think that's my preferred way to fix the Ramsey problem. Uh, And, you know, trying to find a way. El Nenny is not a DM, not not in the sense that the last man DM. Well, neither was Arteta, right? I mean, but depending on the system, and if you're trying to keep possession, I mean, hell, Sergio Busquets isn't a DM if you want to take that, you know, that view of the world, right? Well, uh, but I'm not, uh, he could be. I've never seen him play where he is truly the deepest lying player. And that's Mm -hmm. what I mean by DM. I don't necessarily mean the the Matic hard man. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you look at his tackling stats in, in games the few games where he and Coquelin have played a pretty similar role. And, you know, it's Coquelin does all the dirty work. Um, Well, he's the king of tackling. He is. But Arteta was a hell of a tackler too. So, you know, he may have a bit of the Santi Cazorla's in that he can do a pretty good job as the second pivot 
God for, forgive me for saying that. But anyway, the <laughs> pivote. Um, I've yet to see him personally be the responsible at the back. Doesn't mean he couldn't do it. Um, but playing alongside, you know, I'm sure we're going to get, see it at some stage. I'm not convinced it's an automatic snap with the two of them. And yeah. it may not play to both of their strengths. So I don't know. Real quick, um, you, I assume, remember from either your first, second, or seventh viewing uh, yes. that Mesut Ozil was given a good kicking for having the audacity to perform a piece of skill. Fucking I assume that, that's what, we need more of that in English football, right? Stamp out this fucking skill that's ruining the game. Can I just say that? Because they decided to like clear him out because he was showboating. But that's not correct. They cleared him out right at the start of the game. Neom fucking uh, went into his head. When, right, but there was clearly a moment later in the game when he, he cleaned him out and then said it's because you did yeah, that little yeah, but the, uh, behind the foot pass, you know, that back heel pass. Sure, but as the commentators talked about it, that was like it, there was a touch of that he had it coming. That was in response to him showboating. But sorry, they had already done that to him when he was just playing straight up. To me, that was his revenge because they had given him a fucking hard time all game. And he was pissed off, and he was going to make them look stupid, and he did. Well, wasn't it? Was it Phil Neville who said if someone performed a piece of skill yep. like I guess what Rizicki had, he'd two foot him. Yep. I mean, that's there is still that cultural element there, and it doesn't do anybody any good um, to have that in the game. Yeah, and the I skill, th- the skill. I mean, we yeah. want to get that out of the and game. I think that's that the that was his way of hitting back at them, showboat and flicks and stuff, and fuck them. Yeah. So fuck them. Yeah, I'm fine with fuck them. Um, hey, Tim. So I got accused of hashtag narrative for this uh, on Twitter, and the cool thing about it is I do not give a fuck um, because it's my, it's my Twitter, and so if I want to say it, I'm going to say it, and I'm going to I'm going to give you a chance to either counter it or agree with it. It is maybe a playing in a narrative a little bit, but certainly a narrative that there's a reason it exists that Arsenal turn on the style when the pressure is off. Um, do you think that? this result is another brick in that wall of the argument that, that Arsenal are a turn it on when the pressure is off team? Um, no, I don't because I don't buy into the idea that we're not under pressure. Um, we're certainly on Saturday. I still thought that if Leicester dropped points and we won, that you know we'd be back in it. Um, that hasn't happened because Leicester haven't dropped points, and therefore, I think my kind of hope has dropped to one to two percent. Whereas before the weekend fixtures, I was probably on a five to ten percent tip. But um, I, I don't buy that we're not under pressure. We're still trying to finish above Spurs. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, wait. Let me, let me just stop you there, real quick. I mean, do you think the likes of a Mesedozo and Alexis Sanchez, who have played where they have and accomplished what they have, and a, a Danny Welbeck, who was raised as a United player, do you think they really care? They want titles, and they want to finish in the Champions League places. Do you think they take on the the concern of finishing ahead of Spurs? We consider that pressure. I don't. Yeah. I don't think that pressure filters to the players. I I I don't think. I don't think the Tottenham element does. I, right, I do think I mean. that I do think that they they'll want to. And listen, I know that it's not the most motivating factor in the world. I still think they'll want to finish as, as close as possible to it. 
the, the Everton game, for example, I thought we were under massive pressure. We've just gone out of two competitions and we're away at Everton. I agree with you that, know, yes. 12.45 on a Saturday, we were under huge pressure. Um, and last year, you know, we, we've won cup finals in the last two seasons. And again, mm-hmm. we've been under a lot of pressure. Don't get me wrong, I, I fully understand. I do think there's an element, an element of that to it. I think there always has been with Arsenal and there always will be while we play the football we do because it relies on confidence and it relies on, um, you know, it's basically it's football that lends itself to there not being that much pressure. And you saw it with, um, you know, with the great Arsenal teams of just over a decade ago. I remember, you know, we threw the league away um, by losing at home to Leeds in 2003 and then in the next game, we absolutely walloped Southampton 6-0 and then we went and beat Sunderland 4-0. And that was the beginning of the 49-match unbeaten run. And that was that was the same thing. And it's it's also a mixture of the fact that at this point of the season, you get teams that aren't playing for much. And it's not a huge coincidence that there were three 4-0 scorelines in the Premier League this weekend because mm. starting to get to that stage and... We're, you know, we just played Everton, who are in the FA Cup semi-final. We just played Watford, who clearly got their eye on Wembley. Hopefully, West Ham will do the same. Hopefully, Crystal Palace will do the same, and that might work in our favour. That we've got four teams in a row who, who might have their eye on other prizes. Um, so it's it's a little mixture of that. But I, I, th- I think I, I understand why people say that, and I think there's an element of truth to it. But I do think people come at it. From the wrong angle, I think this is much more a symptom of having a balanced team for the first time in ages. Okay. Um, Because, you know, we were under pressure in December as well. And actually, we played some of our best football. Well, it's funny. I was going to bring up December, though, right? Like, we beat Man City. And and now the title feels real. And the very next game, we lose 4-0 at a mediocre Southampton, right? That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, Olympiacos were under huge pressure and one yes, of our best that's performances of the season. And that and that was with, you know, a Ramsey Flamini midfield and, you know, with, with lots of element and a half fit Theo Walcott on the left wing. You know, there there was a lot wrong with that team functionally, but they still turned up that night. Um but I, I think it's much more at the moment it's much more a symptom that tactically we're much more balanced. And I also think just it's the nature of the football that Arsenal play, it will always play better when A, we're playing teams that don't have a lot to play for and B, perhaps when the pressure is off of us a, a little bit um, because, you know, we play expressive football and it's easier to express yourself and that was true even of the great Arsenal teams. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think it's I think it's an angle that's either overplayed or arrived at from the wrong angle. Let me ask you this, and Paul, I know you want to contribute, um, so so I'll I'll give you a chance to say what you want to say, but I also want to ask you this. I feel like Arsenal, and and I don't have the stats to back this up, but I but I feel like when the weather's okay and the pitches start to get a little smoother and it suits our game, you know, when it's not a cold, wet night in Stoke and it's not a, a cow pasture in Sunderland in December, we start to play better football. I mean. Is there a seasonal correlation here with with the style we want to play and and when our performances start to to heat up literally and figuratively? Yeah, I guess I've often wondered that, but uh I think you also find that when you hit the winter months is when you hit your injuries 
and when the team gets disrupted. And I think many people would say, looking at the person, I agree with Tim that it's primarily tactical and personnel. And when we got this personnel together and started putting together a run of performances, uh, let alone results, was the North London Derby, which was probably the most pressurized game we've played uh, this year and maybe this season because it was all on the line. That was kind of, you know, we lose that. Uh, the most recent derby, we lose that game. We're in the shitter. Now, yeah, we only drew it in the end, but it was at White Hart Lane. We were down to 10 men. We all know the details of it. But, you know, it was one of those really great performances considering, and people said, but what did it really mean? Uh but there was plenty of character and there's plenty of really good play. And we saw character and good play continue every time we put that personnel out to play that way tactically. Uh, uh, the, you know, Ramsey played in the North London Derby, I guess, instead of a Wobie. But apart from that, you're basically looking at this personnel and it all worked well. And I think, you know, that to me is the proof of this team would and does play well under pressure. Uh, the worrying thing is when you don't have a uh, a team that can play tactically this way, we look pretty fragile. So there is a fragility mm-hmm. to us when we don't have the balance we need. I I think other other clubs tough it out better than we do, but it doesn't mean that the team doesn't have character and doesn't have a spine. It's just we kind of need certain personnel for this for that for that to see to show and when we don't have that we need good weather and favorable conditions and mm-hmm. a little less stress because we don't have the balance yeah and i i think that you, you could make an argument that the reason for this feeling that we fold when the pressure is on is that we have not been a solid defensive unit over the years it's been a team that's emphasized beautiful attacking football and on the days when the beautiful attacking football isn't totally purring we're a team that's going to be susceptible to giving up one goal on one shot on target right and losing one nil um and we've seen a lot of that i i you know i i think it's an open question about whether this team performs under pressure and i think it's been an open question for years about how arson wenger manages his players under pressure does he bring in players that have the character he talks a lot about mental strength this is not saying that's solvable with analytics and data. It's just one of those things that people are going to have an opinion about until something happens that they feel either proves it one way or the other. And I, I don't think it can be proven. Um, hell, if we go on and win all the rest of our games and somehow finish top of the table, that would be one fine-ass way to prove that we don't have a problem with pressure. Um, Paul, let's really quickly touch on the, the substitutions. And I know we haven't really talked about too many of the incidents of the game, but I think there are larger issues that came from this in our first time to debate Arsenal in a couple of weeks. So I think we're getting to the sort of heart of the matter. Um, Walcott and Giroud both got a chance to get off the bench um, and contribute. And I thought Joel Campbell was really the one who shined and looked the best yeah. um, in, in his brief cameo. What did you make of the performance of the substitutes? Um, you know, I really do think they fit into the kind of sloppy time end of the game. What did it really mean? Bracket more more than anything. Uh, Campbell looked really good. I mean, fair play to him. He's keeping. It's got to be very frustrating for him, and he's keeping his head up. 
Um, the other, the other guy. He's th- certainly showing that he has the skill set and the qualities to continue to play a role for Arsenal, right? I mean, yeah. he's not just someone who can can shoot, you know, and score goals like we saw him score for Olympiacos against United in the Champions League. Those one one in ten game kind of goals, but his his vision and his his distribution is really excellent. Yeah, he's clearly got some some deep deep natural ability, and he doesn't find it that hard to turn it on because. Uh, as I was kind of saying, you know, he could be forgiven for going into a little bit of a slump. He was on this blistering uh, run of getting games and, and putting in good performances, and now he's getting stuck on the bench because Iwobi is shining. And yet he comes on, and he turns it on again. So, you know, great credit to him. Uh, I'm not sure we learned too much about Giroud or Walcott um, from their appearances, and, and I think it was kind of pretty much token um we'll learn more in other circumstances uh hopefully theo enjoyed the goal and gives him a little bit of a fill-up mm-hmm. um what about you tim i mean to me Giroud kind of had a, a sort of unimpressive or almost uninvolved cameo i hard to pick the bones out of a four nil victory and you know pick on someone especially when you have a reputation for picking on that person in the first place but what did you make of his his cameo, and where do you see his Arsenal position, maybe even career, kind of moving to right now? Um, well, I thought, well, let's take Giroud. Let's take uh, to make this sample size slightly bigger. His his kind of uh, when he came on against Everton as well. Um, I mean, again, Paul makes a very good point that they all came on at a time where the game had died a death, really. Um, and, yeah, but you know, some players use that as an opportunity to really just turn it on. And I mean, we've seen Giroud yeah. pad his stats in, in parts of games like that, right? Yeah, and, and actually, that's um, Walcott is a very, very big proponent of that. He is, sure is um, yeah. the absolute master of uh, icing the cake, shall we Oi. say. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody um, likes icing. That's the best part of the cake. Um, but I mean, I, I, I think we saw, and again, this isn't necessarily his fault per se it's just the type of player he is that um we kind of it, it was a bit like glimpsing behind the curtain when the subs came or, or certainly Giroud and Walcott and it was a bit like um yeah this was what was happening a couple a month or so ago that you know the ball just started getting stuck again and they did the flow kind of came out of the game um and I think they all they kind of showed why they're not being picked um, and again, I, I want to emphasize that's not necessarily because, you know, they're terrible players and they're awful. It's, it's just because, um, we found a balance that works with a certain type of player and they ain't it. That's not to say that that's the case in perpetuity because you've only got to look at how many iterations have we seen of the Arsenal team in the last two years. It, and, you know, you, you made the point earlier. This happens at most teams, actually. It changes constantly according to form. According to who you have available, you come up with different solutions. So that's not to say that, um, you know, Giroud and Walcott, well, that's it now. They're, they're rubbish. Let's get rid of them. They don't fit in because, you know, things well, will change. Well, there goes my closing statement, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> things will change and they, they, they might well change before the end of the season because we might get injuries, suspensions or whatever. Uh, they'll certainly change again um, next season because I, I don't see, you know, this starting 11 as good as it's been. I don't see that being the starting eleven come August because I think there'll be a little bit of squad surgery one way or another. So 
you know, things are constantly changing and, and, and there might come a point where very soon where once again, Giroud, yeah, we were talking about Theo Walcott earlier in the season, you know, oh, look, he's kind of looks like he might solve the number nine riddle and that hasn't really happened because of circumstances. So these things can kind of take on, take on different iterations. As for Giroud, I think he's probably heading where I think Arsene Wenger's been trying to steer his Arsenal career since he arrived, really, in that a good plan B, a good option from the bench, someone fairly reliable that you can stick in if you've got injuries. But, you know, it, I think it's been very, very clear from where, since we signed him that Giroud is our first choice striker has never really been the plan. And he's he's tried to, you know, give Walcott his head up front and uh, give him a run of games to make him the solution and then injure his bit and we needed him somewhere else. And now he's doing it with Welbeck. And again, pointing to quotes from the manager, he he said that Danny Welbeck should take inspiration from, uh, what's the name of the Borussia Dortmund striker? Aubameyang. Aubameyang, yeah. That's it. Aubameyang, yeah, that's the one. He said that he should take inspiration You, you, you mean from future him. Arsenal striker Pierre-Emerick <laughs> Aubameyang? Yeah. Yeah, t- take inspiration from him because um, uh, you'll be seeing a lot more of him soon. Yes, uh, exactly. You'll be able to learn from him in training. <laughs> he, you know, he kind of intimated that they're a very similar type of striker, but recently uh, Aubameyang's hit that age and that profile where he started to really add goals to his game, and that's what he wants Welbeck to do. And it, it looks like he's taken the bet on Welbeck that he tried to take on Walcott earlier in the season, i.e., this is the type of number nine I want in my team. So I'm going to give him a run um, and see what he can do for us and see if he can put anything together. So I think this is just another of the litany of examples of Wenger trying to say that Giroud is a valuable member of the squad, someone I'd have no compunction about starting in the right circumstances or if we had injuries, but not really my first choice. Um, As for Walcott, I think Walcott's got some thinking to do this summer about his Arsenal place and his England place because, you know, Danny Welbeck at the moment is doing what really we wanted Walcott to do. Alex Awobi is probably doing a little bit of what we wanted Walcott to do. Um, and that goes for Chamberlain as well, by the way. So, you know, he, I think his career is at a little bit of a crossroads. I think that Arsenal would listen to a good offer for Theo Walcott. I believe that because he's finishing this season where he finished last season on the bench. Um, and I, I don't think that that's a particularly good sign for him. I don't think, I don't think Wenger implicitly trusts him. I think he trusts him when he has to or when the circumstances are right. But I think a lot of his behaviour says that he's starting to lose a bit of patience with Walcott. And if Arsenal found someone who, not necessarily that Arsenal would put him up for sale, but if someone came in with the money, um, I I wonder if we'd listen to that. That said, I'm not sure anybody will because I'm not sure anyone will take on that salary at the moment. So um, having said that, you know, this by no means ends either of their Arsenal careers, I think both players... Probably a little bit of a crossroads. Doesn't have to be a drastic one, but um, I think they're both being steered towards that plan B. And this that this is what Wenger has wanted for a long time—a much more mobile, 
front three that plays the kind of football we associate with Arsene Wenger. Yeah, and I, I think the fact that Danny Welbeck and Alex Iwobi are able to keep Theo Walcott and Olivier Giroud out of the squad, or certainly out of the starting squad, is is pretty indicative of where they are on the totem pole right now. The other thing I'll say that doesn't help Giroud's case is the fact that Alexis Sanchez has never particularly looked like he fits in with him well. And if you plan to have Alexis around for a while and be one of, if not your main star in attack, um, he's got to be able to perform. And if he can't do that with Giroud, that doesn't help Olivier's case for getting more playing time. Uh, Paul, I, it's a topic that I'm, I'm sure you, you want to contribute to, but then I want to get to the last really quick question and wrap up. I mean, if I said to you that on, uh, on opening day next season, when we kick off against whoever we're going to be kicking off against, um, hopefully some newly promoted side at the Emirates, um, you know, we've, we've hoisted the Premier League trophy, we've won the Charity Shield again, and the season has kicked off, and I tell you that Danny Welbeck is not starting at center forward. Ah! Gun to your head, would you say it's because Giroud or Theo is, or would you say it's because we've gone into the market and that player is? Uh, injury, not not because of injury. Wow. Um, well, not the latter. Um, so you don't think, you don't, if, oh, sorry, if Giroud sorry. or Theo is starting... At, at center forward on the first day of next season. Or sorry, if, if Welbeck is not, yeah. you think it's because Giroud or Theo will have gotten their place back? No, sorry, the other way around. We'll, we'll have okay. signed, if it's not injury, we would have signed somebody. I mean, okay. for me, it's, it's not, not even close. Um, you know, as, In other words, you don't see Giroud or Theo no. f- forcing their way back into the manager's plans as, as the first choice striker for Arsenal going forward. I don't, unless Welbeck just can't score uh but even then the way he stirs the pot is pretty darn good and unless theo has been on a blistering run or or Giroud and the manager wants to reward that but that's hard to do obviously first game of the season so i could see them holding the place for the while and and the manager keeping trust with them for as long as their their form lasts but i agree with tim that Neither of them um, is the kind of striker that really lets us play our football. Walcott is, but he needs to show he can more be more substantive uh, consistently. And he, he has, you know, he started promisingly, but got injured and has not shown nearly enough to warrant any kind of trust or belief that he can do it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Look, it's going to be interesting, but I think. The the sad problem I, I think you know if you look at if you look at Leicester they're top of the table they have a striker in form who fits their system perfectly who's scoring goals you look at Spurs they're second in the table they have a striker in form who scores lots of goals and fits their system perfectly and you look at Arsenal and it's a position we're still kind of sort of trying to figure out and I you know as important as the midfield balance is and as much as I think that derailed us in late December January February. Um, I think if you have a 30-goal-per-season striker up front who bangs in even half chances and creates his own, it... Ooh, it Obama yangs co- them in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, it covers a lot of warts. One last quick thing, just because it was in the news. Um, Tim, I'll give you a shot at it. I'll give you a shot at it, Paul, if you care. Either of you care at all about the Jack Wilshire out till two, maybe 
in a bust up story. I mean, Tim, is this, are you someone who says, look, he's in his twenties, he can do what he wants. Or do you think it reflects poorly on his professionalism? If this was a first offense, I, I mean, I really hate commenting on things like this. Cause I hate moralizing about it and things like mm-hmm. that. And, you know, well, it's, being, it's all stuff we've all done, right? Yeah. <laughs> when we were and, 24. And, and, you know, look, to be honest, at the age of 24, I wasn't earning <laughs> uh, several thousand pounds a week uh, as an athlete. And therefore, you know, it's, it's That's the different. key. Yep. But at the same time, um, Jack Wilshere is an absolutely elite footballer at the age of 24. And therefore, for me to give him advice <laughs> seems a little bit misplaced, which is why I hate commenting on these things. But you're obvious, obviously, of... Tim, not familiar with the role of a podcast, which is to do exactly <laughs> that. Yeah, you've gotten this totally wrong. To moralize. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm kind of caught between two stools. I hate commenting on it, but since you've asked me... Um, You're welcome. I I think if this was a first offense, I don't think I'd really care. It's not with Wilshire, and it's not so much whatever he did alleged to have done or anything like that. It's just that he, a bit like Chesney, you know, it's just like you keep getting caught and that's it doing whatever you're doing. And that's just a bit silly. And surely you've learned by now. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying don't go out and have a life because, you know, there's dickheads with camera phones everywhere. But, you know, just, just be a little bit circumspect. Just think, well, I've been in trouble over this kind of thing before and the club have felt my collar about it. So, you know what, maybe... I'll wait till I'm like in my thirties before I go out on the piss on Saturday nights when my career's over and the rest of it. So I've, I'm kind of between two stools. I, I think this does happen a little bit too often with Jack. And also what it, it kind of begs the question is, I mean, surely he's not in the newspapers every time he goes to a nightclub, right? But he's been in the newspapers due to incidents in nightclubs quite a lot, which suggests that he's in, nightclubs quite a lot which i'm not sure a top class footballer should be um and you know when you look at the careers of of, of great great football even absolute dickheads like cristiano ronaldo who you know for all his vanity is a guy who does everything right right you know he, he goes home and goes to bed early and things like that and absolutely dedicates himself to his career and Takes all the best steroids. And, uh, well, <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> and um, and you know has 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 his own underwear collection, which he likes to flaunt every now and then. But so you know, on, on one hand, on the face of it, I think I'm about sixty to seventy percent. Well, who cares really? I'm sure a lot of footballers do this kind of thing, and it just doesn't end up in the paper. But then there's a part of me that thinks. Jack Wilshere's in the newspaper in nightclubs quite a lot, which suggests that. Actually, he goes to nightclubs quite a lot, and I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's that's a, a great look, um, to be quite honest. And that he should at least be a bit smarter about hiding it. Um, let me make a point about what you just said because I think this is what people don't realize. Because I've had people on Twitter say to me, "Well, you know, what was the last time he was caught? A year ago? I mean, so once a year he does this stuff." I had the unfortunate um, experience of being uh, closely involved with a person who was uh, an alcoholic. And it was not a fantastic experience. And I'm not saying Jack's now called. That's not my point. Just hear me out. Um, that person had multiple arrests for drunk driving. Um, three of them, in fact. And I can assure you, she had not driven drunk 
three times. Yeah. She had probably driven drunk 300 times and been caught three times. Yeah. The fact is, people don't get caught, okay, occasionally, very rarely, but for the most part, people don't get caught every time they do something. They get caught some percentage of that time. So Jack getting caught kind of repeatedly doing some stuff that demonstrates maybe a lack of professionalism means he's probably doing it a lot more than just the times he's been caught. Well, he got, now, again, he, he got caught in yeah. this case because the cops were called. So, Well, yeah, I mean, and, and I get had, it. Look, had the cops not been called, we probably No one would, would have said boo about it. Yeah, right. which is but to you your what, point. Paul? I'm not saying that's okay. I'm just saying to your point, no, no, no. the yeah. 300 times, I'm very much of the it's not that big a deal, but I don't feel that way this time around. You know, if this were a couple of months ago when he was clearly out injured and clearly had a long time to come back, he's within a couple, two or three weeks of his comeback. Uh, and he's got the Euros on the line. It's, it's blatant stupidity. And it's not like he was with his mates and they were drinking and he wasn't. You know, there's, there's some evidence he was, you know, I got wilshered myself on Saturday night. I think he got pretty well wilshered. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, there was an altercation. There were people showing Jack away. The, these aren't the signs of a guy drinking tap water. Um, and it's just, you know, the, he's right at the cusp of making his comeback. This is when he needs to be in tip-top shape. And here's the point, right? Like, his he has paid millions and millions of pounds to do one thing. Be in shape to play football at the absolute highest level. And his responsibility to earn those millions and millions of pounds are not just to rock up on Saturdays and Sundays and play well. It's to live his life in such a way that his body can be in the shape it needs to be so that he can perform at the highest level. That is the responsibility. I mean, American athletes, and Tim, I don't know if this is true of European athletes, but American athletes, it's routine for them to have clauses in their contract that say they can't ride motorcycles. They can't play pickup basketball with their friends because yeah. the team basically wants to control how they live their life to minimize risk. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I got my first TV job in my early, early 20s when I was 22. Don't worry, nothing real and important, just silly, stupid TV, but it was TV. And I was at an age where I liked to go out and drink and be at bars and things like that. And the fact is, I couldn't even do my stupid TV job effectively if I'd been out till 2 a.m. The, the night before. Um, my body didn't feel right. And I wasn't trying to be in the top 10th of a percentile of physical fitness and, and capability. So it's not a moral issue. It's a question of responsibility to your employer, to your club, to your job as a professional. And the question is, does his lifestyle allow him to be the pro- best professional he can be? Thierry Henry's on record saying he didn't drink and party during his career. And we all know what kind of professional he was. So it's disappointing, not from a moral standpoint. I just think from a commitment to professionalism standpoint. And that, yeah. I think, is all that needs to be said about that. Anybody disagree with that? The only That's saloon small. Jack should be at is the last chance saloon. Oh, he's there. Believe me. He's, he walked into that place a while ago. Um, anyway, uh, it is a pleasure to talk to you guys. I missed speaking about the Arsenal with you, especially uh, after a big victory. So um, cheers for coming on. I, I hope you will follow these fine gentlemen on Twitter. Tim can be found at Stilberto. Paul can be found at Posnan in my pants. Read their blogs, listen to their other podcast appearances, and most importantly, listen to them here because uh, God knows you're not here for me. Uh, as we always ask and thank you for in advance, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, if you will. And it's it's a what we found is 
people are more inclined to read five-star reviews. So what you do is you leave the five-star review, then write all the nasty shit in the comments of the review. And, and that also throws people off and becomes an interesting uh, whole bring, – brings a whole drama to life in and of itself, and that's fun for everyone. Anyway, uh, we have West Ham away next. It is one of maybe two really significant hurdles along the way to our perfect run-in and lifting the Premier League trophy. So that's going to be an interesting one to see. Uh, hopefully the manager sticks with this – same team, and, and I think Kuyate got a red card, right? So he probably will miss that game against us, which should help a little bit. We'll take whatever we can get. Until then, Tim, great to talk to you. My pleasure, as always. I assure you the pleasure was mine. And Paul, uh, it I talked to you too. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Yeah, okay, guys, uh, have a great week. Uh, enjoy the <laughs> Champions League, and we'll talk to you after West Ham. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. In the latest episode of History This Week, we take a closer look at a failed insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building in 1861, when the nation was on the cusp of a civil war. Nearly 160 years later, what can we learn from this moment when democracy was challenged? And check out all our episodes this month as History This Week celebrates Black History Month. Last week, we covered the Greensboro sit-ins that sparked a media firestorm and inspired mass sit-ins across the country. Next week, we travel to Australia and witness Sydney students taking a freedom ride of their own for Aboriginal civil rights. After that, we'll be exploring the origins of jazz. For these stories and more, subscribe to History This Week wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST recommends. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.